You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Hello and welcome to The Magnet Theater Podcast. I am your host, Louis Kornfeld. My guest today is the great Chrissy Grubel. Chrissy, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I don't know anything about you, Chrissy. I'm a mystery. Yeah. I've known you for a long time. I don't know anything about you. To rectify that. <laughs> let's just, get, let's really unpack. Tell me about our friendship. yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Things are going to get really real. Um, tell you about myself. <laughs> the worst question. <laughs> oh my God. Well, <laughs> um, well, I am from Long Island originally. Nassau County, I found out Nassau recently. County. Yep. See, you do know facts about me. I know. Me. Yeah. I actually, I'm kind of joking. I, <laughs> I do know a couple of facts about you. Uh, um, how are you? How are you one of those self-hating Long Island people? Or are you pretty happy with, with your, your habitat? Um, I don't. There's a lot of things about Long Island that are very specifically Long Island to me that I don't like. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of like conspicuous consumption and like giant SUVs and just everyone living on top of each other and just loud, very straightforward, very pushy people. Mm. Not everyone, obviously, but that's always the negatives when I think about Long Island. And I love my family and I love the house I grew up in. Um, so I don't hate going back there, but I did try to like lose my accent and if it ever comes out, I'm like horrified by myself. Like I was talking to a friend recently and I said something was awful, Uh which I, I, I don't know where it came from. I don't know like how it happened, but I immediately just tried to like take the words out of the air and like eat them because (laughs) I couldn't believe that that had happened. Um, but I'm not, yeah, I'm not entirely a self-hating Long Islander, but Long Island is very specific. Yeah. But uh, I, um, are there like triggers that bring out a Long Island accent for you? Do you find yourself sounding more Long Island in different situations among different people? Yes. If I'm mad, yeah, it'll come out. Um, if I'm home for a really long time yeah. and I come back, it'll be there. Um, and those are really the two. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, when you go home to see your family, is it the same house that you grew up in? Yeah. Do, were you born or raised in the same same Born place raised, same house, and my sister and her husband and her kids live in it with my parents. That's so delightful. It is insane <laughs> and lovely. I love it, but it's hilarious. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm uh, the same way. I also uh, uh, grew up in the same home that I was born into, and I feel like it had a defining uh, 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 imprint on my personality. Mm-hmm. There's always in the back of my mind this feeling of home base being right there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And I, you know, went away for college and I lived in Philadelphia for a really long time. And I kind of like resisted living in New York City for for a good part of my adult life after college. I never really was one of those people who was like, you know, fist under my chin, like staring out at the stars, like I can't wait to move to New York City and make all my dreams come true. You know, I never really had that perception of New York City. Hmm. I was always really nervous about New York City. Um, I guess because I grew up in the 80s and my parents were just like hearing about like murders and, and all the horrible stuff that was happening here. And we just were like shuttled in to see a matinee on Broadway and then shuttled out immediately. Like I never saw the West Village right. or anything nice yeah. about 
the city. In the 80s, we all just assumed New York City was, it was just smoke coming out from underground. From grates. And it, just like smoky grates everywhere <laughs> and, and alleyways. Yep. I thought that's Grainy. where you went to get murdered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's where New York City was to me. Yeah. Well, I was disappointed when I finally started hanging out in New York all the time to find that there are almost no alleyways in New York City. That all of that stuff from movies that we were fed when we were kids was filmed in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So alleyways and, and very little smoke coming from grates in the ground. I don't know what was going on in the 80s, but they solved the problem. <laughs> they I really did. They really mopped it up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we would just be bridge and tunnel people just coming in. You know, going to the very select few bridge and tunnel bars that we go to, then we would go home. Yeah. I had such a limited perspective on how great, great the city is um, until I kind of moved back here five years ago, I guess. From Philly? Yeah. Uh, is that where you went to school? No, I went to school at the University of Scranton. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the famous theater school mm-hmm. where I was a theater major. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, world famous theater city, world right. famous theater school. Right. Um and then after I graduated, I moved to Philadelphia. I was dating someone at the time who was from that area. And it just seemed like a more palatable place to start out when you're just out of college. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to be an actor until like senior year, second semester. And then I was like, that's not a life that I can get on board with. I'm mm. too nervous. Um, so I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And Philadelphia seemed like a place that I could kind of pay my rent and survive and it seemed just less intimidating. So we went there and I stayed for a long time. I really liked it there. Yeah. Well, how, how long was that? Hmm. I stayed there for, I guess, five years, yeah. five-ish, five, and five, five or six. Long enough for it to feel like home. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Philly seems like a manageable place. Yeah. There, there's something kind of like, um, this is going to sound really insulting to people from Philadelphia. Something kind of bite-sized about the city. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it is. It, it felt so much more manageable to be there, and I felt like I could kind of sink into it yeah. faster than I could here, um, faster than my perception that I could here, you know? Yeah. Um, like, I got there, and, and I discovered the parts of the city that I wanted to discover and the restaurants that I wanted to discover, and I did a little bit of theater, that just enough where it was not my life, but it was something that I could still do that I enjoyed. Um, and it just, it was good. It was a good life. I liked it there a lot. Mm. So you, so the, the bug, the theater bug stayed with you, even though the lifestyle turned out to be something that, uh, uh, wasn't manageable for you. Yeah. Yeah. I think I always, I always really enjoy performing. It was really specifically musicals, uh-huh. um, that I liked the most. Um, even though I did, I did a couple of musicals and then one, I'm sorry, excuse me. <clears throat> Cough away. Oh man, that was embarrassing. Gosh. I'm already blowing this. Everybody coughs. <laughs> and Pat May burped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, love him. I love that man. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I did. Um, I worked at this um, small, small community theater that was like 95 seasons in. And the building itself was so old that it had swastikas like on tiling in the lobby. Like they had all these little. Um, Symbols and swastikas was part of the mosaic, and hmm. um, and they like had pre Nazi like pre Nazi swastikas, and wow. I was just like, where am I? What is this? Um, but you know, it was a very comical community theater. I did a production of The Secret Garden where I was hoisted up in the air on a swing, like 
God, like 60 feet in the air, and the swing would just creak and thunk the whole way up and down. And it was supposed to be this like graceful thing, and I was singing, and it was just like, thunk, and the whole thing would shake. And they put they lowered me on top of a door, and it was just like all of these great noises off s kind of moments just happening like in the middle of these productions that were they're very funny for me to think about now isn't it kind of amazing how you like put your trust in certain people's hands that just like okay this will be fine 60 feet in the air is no problem the size of the man who was used who's doing the pulley system he was like half my size like i don't understand how this is gonna work but i'll put this wrist strap on and i'll be fine yeah oh man yeah it was something there there's something like even more romantic to me about the, the kind of like crappiness of some of the places that you perform. Yeah, I know. Then the kind of like fantasy of like what, what life is going to be like when, when we hit like the professional leagues. There's something I just totally. like love about like, oh, we're performing in a junior high school, like auditorium slash cafeteria. Abs- oh, I love that stuff. It's my favorite thing. And th- those are the things that, I have a friend actually in New York who is in that production with me now, and we laugh and laugh and laugh so hard about it all the time. Like, there was one point where I was supposed to just, I was a ghost in the show, and I was supposed to glide, just glide across back, like, the back of the stage. Um, not, there was no reference made to me. It was just, like, a visual. And the hem of my dress got stuck on a nail, uh-huh. like, halfway through. So I kept walking, and, like, the skirt of my dress just ripped slowly, like, as I walked. <laughs> <laughs> and I got back into the wings and I just had to like slowly just hand over hand just take this gigantic long string of my dress and get it back backstage with me. Um yeah, those are the all the com- all the comedy of that is are my favorite memories I unless love that stuff. the drama of the production, yeah. you know, like yeah. I don't really have time for that. I was in a production of Cinderella in junior high school, and we had a real serious backstage ant problem. Uh, so that was always the thing before you got into costume was you had to, like, debug all of your clothes and stuff oh. and just be, like, ants crawling all over you when you were on stage. It was fabulous. Oh, I had an internship in college where I was assistant stage managing at a professional theater. It was, like, an equity house, an old, beautiful theater in Warren, Pennsylvania, which is, like, we were, like, the circus people, like, trucked in for the summer. And... There was a show I was supposed to start doing. It was a chorus line, I think, was the production at the time. And I couldn't start the show. We couldn't start the show because I couldn't sit backstage because there was a bat that kept, like, dive bombing <laughs> the light at the desk. <laughs> I was just like, I can't, I can't be in here right now. I'm very scared of bats. It was, and we had to just, we had to find someone who could get rid of it before we could start. Well, how, how do you get rid of a bat? Um, we actually trapped it in a hallway uh-huh. in like one of the upper, we like kind of, I mean, we kind of just like shook stuff at it, uh-huh. and like tried to direct it out of the actual house. Um, and we got it like stuck in a hallway and somebody came and took care of it while we were, I don't know what they did to it, but somebody came and took care of it. Uh, it's stuff like that. When I think of like the theatrical lifestyle, that's actually the, the first stuff that comes to mind more than anything. Like in my mind, the theatrical lifestyle is still like turn of the century vaudeville. Oh, a hundred percent. With like your dressing room is also like stuffed filled with crates of oranges for some reason. And with, like rats are eating the oranges out of the boxes mm-hmm. and, and like all that stuff is just like shit holes. Yeah. I have like no... I have no idea what our truly professional theater experience would be like. That is my perception of like what theater is. Yeah. <laughs> it's like 
everyone's just like running around. There's like bags of wigs everywhere. Like someone's just like trying to trying to just like put clothes on and it's a mess all the time. I get so jazzed by that chaos backstage. Yeah, me too. I, I like uh, it just gives you this like electric feeling when you think about about that. Were you doing like a lot of stuff in in, in pre-college like uh high school and did you do those productions or or like when did you when did you kind of veer in that direction? Um I had always like had a little bit of like I I want to do this. I can do this. Um I did like a little bit in middle school, which is like kind of when I first started like doing like performing and then when I went to high school, I was a cheerleader. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which adults who know me now are very surprised to hear that fact, but it was like a very highly competitive, very athletic cheerleading program at my high school and that took up all my time. Mm-hmm. Um which I guess has an element of performance in it as well. Sure. Yeah. And discipline and and, mm-hmm. and choreography. Why is that surprising now? What what why why would adult Chrissy be opposed to Teenage Chrissy being a cheerleader. I don't know. I think I don't. I'm not surprised by it. I think it makes sense. Um, I'm always kind of like, wait, why? Don't you think I'm cheerful? Uh-huh. <laughs> don't you think I'm happy? Um, Is that the perception of you that you're not cheerful? I don't know. When people are always like, you were a cheerleader. I think people think of like lame, okay, like cheerleaders who were just like you know holding pom poms and wearing the skirt and just like you know are barely involved. Um, maybe. Um, but I always try to clear it up and be like, no, no, it was like a big, it was like a very athletic kind of serious team sport at my high school. And then everyone's like, oh no, I can see it then. It feels like not feminist, I guess. And I'm such a strong feminist, I guess now, but I don't know. It's very, the the reaction's always very interesting. Yeah. I, well, yeah, I guess I could see that. I don't know. I, that would be surprising to me that people would be surprised. Oh, well, thank you. You strike me always as incredibly cheerful. Thank you. And unironic. (laughs) <laughs> you do not seem like a too cool for school person who would like sneer at stuff like that. You seem very open and sincere and direct. Oh, I try to be like that. Thank you. Well done. It communicates. All right. <laughs> yeah, I could, I could totally. Yeah, I get that. It's cool. Yeah. yeah. It was. It was. Uh, it was. We were good. It was something that was a great thing. Yeah. Yeah. But then in college, I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do. I feel like when I look back on my senior year of high school, it was kind of in a coma. Like I was. I was like smart enough, but I didn't study a ton. Mm-hmm. I think if I'd like studied a lot more, I probably would have done better. I don't know. It was just, I was just like kind of, I felt like I was just a very like milk toast person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really had no like strong point of view about what I wanted. Uh, so I kind of got to college and I was a little like, Oh God, what am I, what am I doing here? What do I want? What am I studying? Um, and then I, on a whim auditioned for the first show Uh, my freshman year and got a a small role. And then I just like met the, I was just around people that I wanted to be around. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I just kind of stayed and I declared my theater major. I was a communication major as well. Um, and that's kind of where I spent the majority of my time in college was at the theater. And it felt really satisfying because it was a program that even if you wanted to be an actor, they really stressed knowing everything. Mm -hmm. Um, so I did a lot of stage managing and I did some tech. We, we all built the sets. Like we all did, you know, everything that was required to put up the show. And that's kind of a, every all hands on deck kind of feeling that I really enjoy. Yeah. So, you know, it really was a good, it was a good all around training. It puts things in perspective, doesn't it? Like actors can develop this myopia Mm -hmm. where you become, you, you only think about like your, your 
part of the puzzle and and you can become so sort of hyper obsessed with um whatever whatever your particular obsession may be authenticity of your performance or Mm -hmm. or whatever it is but like you should know like your function in the greater picture it just makes everything better and it puts your part of it in perspective and you you i feel like the more you know how the whole thing works the less you stress out about any individual part of it absolutely and also it's like if you built that door, you're going to respect that door. If you sewed that costume, you're going to take super good care of it. For damn sure. And, you know, when you learn that kind of element of responsibility, it's like you're lit because someone is lighting you. Yeah. And, you know, you have a floor to walk on because somebody built it. And that is, that's just a life lesson, yeah. I think, in general. And, yeah. you know, you take so much more ownership over the entire process as opposed to just having being an actor and saying the lines and cause I think being an actor is, has elements of um, powerlessness, especially when you're like not good and you're in college and mm-hmm. you don't know what you're doing cause you're reading the words that somebody wrote and you're getting the direction from somebody who's directing you and you're learning how to develop a process where you can own parts of your performance um, and bring things to the table that another actor say couldn't. Um, but I think that that kind of, um, total knowledge of the of the um production kind of gives you more power well i i i think that i agree 100 percent with that feeling of powerlessness mm-hmm. it's a weird thing to have somebody else's words coming out of your mouth mm-hmm. and, and and then to become hyper sensitive to to for me it's a, it's a thing of authenticity and feeling like these words don't feel right coming out of my mouth yes. and then you become so obsessed with making these words feel right coming out of your mouth that you kind of lose a sense that your job is to serve this greater story mm-hmm. your job is to bring this story to life for other people yeah. and and you develop this actor's thing where you just kind of assume that your performance is at the center of everything when in fact just like everything else mm-hmm whether you're a lighting technician or whether you're a set designer or whether you're a prop master, it's all at the service of presenting this story and making the story clear for people to follow and engaging. And, and, Mm -hmm. and your part of it doesn't matter quite as much as it feels like. As it feels like it does. Yeah. I mean, it matters, but there isn't Mm -hmm. that urgency that you're, you're feeling like everything lives or dies based on how comfortable you feel doing what it is that you're doing. Mm -hmm. That's like the big fallacy. I, I, I think in my experience is like, it doesn't matter if I'm comfortable doing something. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not an objective criteria for like if this show is going well. Yeah. And also your interior life is not always like you know what's happening inside, even in, in improv too. You know if you feel shitty on stage, but it's often not people often can't tell. Yeah. You know? Um, and I think that that's an important thing to note as a performer. Did you read David Mamet's uh, uh, True and False? Yes, I own it. I don't have a lot of memories of it. It's not. It's okay. Yeah, that's what I've heard. He has one great book about yeah. acting, and then True and False is kind of like the, the worst one. True and False, I, I like it. It, um, I take it with a grain of salt, but I yeah. like it. I, I, I like his writings about theater better than I like his theater personally. Mm-hmm. Okay, it, it, like I don't find his plays as like exciting and riveting and realistic as people find them. I, yeah. I, I find them kind of like square, but mm-hmm. whatever. Now he's going to find me and kick my ass. Yeah, you better watch it. He's a tough guy. <laughs> but I, I like one of the things in True and False that uh, has always made me laugh is like you wouldn't expect if there's a doctor performing surgery on you, you wouldn't expect him to like 
feel inspired to perform a surgery. He just performs the fucking surgery. Just mm-hmm. get on with it. It doesn't make a difference how you feel. Mm-hmm. Or if you think that you're like, you have lightning today versus like, <laughs> it's just, you got to do your surgery. Yeah. And, and when you think of it like that, like, oh, that's such a higher stakes thing than, than pretending to be Peter Pan. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> but it's so vulnerable when you're up there in front of people and, and, yeah. and, and confronting, you're not only confronting like an audience's expectations of you, but it brings up all of these hidden things in your brain that then like every like quiet voice that you've managed to, to like outgrow and overcome then comes like, it's like every one of those voices finds a face of somebody in the audience and then like goes into that person's face. And before you know it, it's just like every like shitty thing you've ever told yourself is coming back out. So it makes sense that you would like (laughs) start to panic if you're not feeling this magic going on inside of you. Yeah. Hence the grounding experience of being part of an ensemble and actually learning how a production works and Mm -hmm. and learning that like perspective in all things. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, when did you move to New York? I moved to New York right at, mm, I moved to New York in 2009. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, it was kind of, I was, I had a really bad breakup with the person that I was in Philadelphia with and everyone here, my family and my friends were all here and they were like, just come home, just come home, you know, be surrounded by the people that you love. Mm-hmm. Um, so I came back here and it was it was such a strange it was such a strange moment in my life because like you know it's kind of when anything happens to you that kind of derails the thing that you think your life is going to be and you get here and you're just like i remember just being having such an out of body experience being like oh i live in i live here now i live in new york like this is a city that i need to like get to know um and it that was probably part of why i started taking improv classes I started taking improv classes kind of in the end of 2009 because a friend of mine that I had done theater with in college was taking classes at UCB and was very, very enthusiastic about it on Facebook, just Mm -hmm. like talked about it all the time. Um, And I was kind of like, well, I had actually done, I was um, a freelance journalist in Philadelphia uh, and I had written something about their improv festival for one of their alt-weekly newspapers right before I left not knowing anything that was about to happen. And and I remember looking at it and watching it and being like, oh, I wonder if this is a thing that maybe I could be good at. I'm not fun. Like, I was never, like, a funny person. Like, I'm not, I was not, like, class clown. I was always like, please just nobody notice me. (laughs) I'll just, like, skate through. Yeah. Um, So when I got here and she started talking a lot about it, I was like, well, maybe I'll just, like, try it. Um, I was kind of in a moment where I was grasping at straws to try to, One, do something that would keep me from going home after work and just, like, being bummed out and sad. Mm -hmm. Um, And two, to try to just, like, I guess subconsciously was trying to find somewhere to just lock in and have something. I was never a person who just went to, went there to their job and went home and, like, that was it. So I was kind of just, like, looking for something. Um, And I was, um, started doing some music stuff with a friend And the improv thing was kind of like, okay, this will help me feel less terrified to be on stage as myself if I'm going to perform music. And maybe it'll just like give me something to do. So I started taking classes at UCB kind of right at the end of 2009. And that's 
that's how this all started. And the hooks got in. And then, the, well, it took a really long time for me to like improv. Oh, really? Yeah. Because he was, I was so embarrassed all the time. Yeah. Oh God, I was so embarrassed. Um, my first show, my first improv show ever in my life was, I wasn't even finished with one-on-one at UCB and I got, they used to do this. They still do it, but it's a different structure now. They do this thing called the lottery. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting an email from their academic person, Eric Tenoy, and he was like, Hey guys, all the students names go in a hat. We pick two from each level. And then they do this lottery show with house performers at 11 o'clock at night after Herald night on Wednesday. So FYI, like that's what this is. And I remember getting that email and being like, God, I hope what that sounds horrible. Like, I hope, I hope that's not me. And lo and behold, I got picked to do that lottery show. So my first improv show ever was on the UCB Chelsea stage at 11 o'clock at night after Herald night to like a full house. Yeah. It was horrifying. Yeah. With, um, with how many people? Um, it was a like an eight, an eight, eight person, person Herald, and I did a Herald. That's I didn't even know what Herald was. It was hilarious. I mean, it was hilarious. I loved, I love that that is a thing. Um, it's different. The way they do it now is different. Um, but I remember pe- people being like, oh my God, you got picked by the lottery. You get to perform with this person and this person, this person. And I was like, I don't know who any of these people are. Yeah. I don't understand what's happening or what a Herald is. Um, so that was my first improv show ever. And then after that, it was just kind of like, uh, I signed up for level two and I was just like, I don't know how I feel about any of this, but it's something to do one night a week mm-hmm. that I can just go and do this thing for three hours. Um, and it was lucky that I did sign up for that level two that I was in because that's where I met my indie team. And then we started the practicing room. the mannequin room. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then we started practicing and I think it honestly took me till right at the end of three Oh one that I was like, I like this. Yeah. Mm hmm. What was that? What what did it? Was it being with those people? It was probably a combination of being with those people, and right around the t- that time, a bunch of new Herald teams got made, mm-hmm. um, and one was named, one was called Sandino, and they just their first show was just magical, and they did kind of like what I always call it: get your ass on the ground improv, where it's like, like if somebody comes out, if a t- your teammate initiates a scene, like I have a gun, everyone get down on the ground. They all just like, before this sentence was even complete, mm-hmm. they were on the ground mm-hmm. and it was just like, oh, this is really inspiring. They're working as a unit in a way that I maybe never noticed before. Yeah. At the same time I was building my own sort of unit. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of when it all came together for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it became less about being like, I'm not funny and more about, this is about making the show funny and right. the people I'm with funny. Right. Yeah. There, you, you start to see the functionality of stuff rather than the kind of like magic quality of you have to be a funny person and, and, totally. and impress people. It, that's also, that that's one of my favorite things. If somebody does exactly what you described, gets on the ground when somebody else pulls out a gun, I, I, I'm constantly, um, frustrated watching shows and, and finding myself in my mind, just going, just do what they're asking you to do. Mm-hmm. Just do it. Yeah. Stop finding reasons not to do it. Stop, stop like matching their level. Just do it. Mm-hmm. Just give in and see what happens, please, for yeah. God's sake. Yeah. So when you see people actually do the simplest thing in the world, it, it suddenly like your heart jumps up into your throat and it's like yeah. the most amazing teamwork ever. Mm-hmm. And it's as simple as like recognizing your function in, in relationship to each other. Mm-hmm. This person needs me to. Uh, uh, sit down. So I will sit down. Absolutely. It's so simple. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what, 
Okay. What would be... Uh, um, what would be exciting work for you these days? What like what would be a, an improv show that you would do or that you would put together or that you would watch and, and point to and say that is what people should be seeing? What what gets you jazzed? Hmm. As an improviser? Yeah. I love I'm really interested in thematic stuff hmm. and letting the suggestion really drive the type of show that you have mm-hmm. um, and, and world stuff. I love world stuff. Um, like if in the first scene a waiter takes, takes an order by like, and like sits on someone's lap while they, while they do it, like that's how waiters in this world take orders. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? What else does that mean about this world and just being able to kind of unpack that whole thing? Um, I really like uh, thematic stuff for me is like if you get a suggestion of like an, uh, this is going to be so, this is such an elementary thing, but like an onion, you know, and maybe, maybe you start, you start with a two person scene or you start with like a group scene and then you peel layers off, like as like an onion, you peel off layers physically. Yeah. Like, you know, maybe you start doing stuff like that, like anything like that. I love, um, Macro stuff, I guess. I'm not very good at it, but I do really like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, um, I'm very big myself on when teams take the risk to include kind of performance art elements into mm-hmm. their show. I, I think I, I think that like a, an improv show isn't complete unless there's like a dash of pretentiousness to it. <laughs> it, it, it it's a healthy part of any theatrical experience that there'd be like a touch of pretentiousness. Mm-hmm. And, and I love when people risk doing weird physical things on stage and looking like complete jackasses totally and i think that i've been so steeped and i've been so 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 lucky in this because i don't think i don't know how many improvisers really get this and it's sad but being on a team of people that will let you do that Mm -hmm. not you specifically but will support it so completely that you never feel like an idiot Mm -hmm. no matter what you do Mm -hmm. um and i think that that is such a huge part of what we do and it's something that I don't know you just don't always get the team that feels like magic you know and I hope I want everyone to like have that experience um I probably the overwhelming experience for most people is you're very lucky to hit that team oh yeah uh uh even once in your career as an improviser you're super lucky to hit that team that has that feeling Mm -hmm. and if you do hit that team it's probably going to be your fourth or fifth team probably it's it's so silly to me the mannequin room is that team metal boy is also that team yeah um which is just such an embarrassment of riches. Um, but yeah, I think having the mannequin room so early, yeah, just like, I never really, we never needed anything else other than ourselves. Yeah. Um, and I think also it stopped us maybe from striving in terms of like trying to succeed within like a, within the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, cause we just were like, we have our thing. Like mm-hmm. we're, we're, this feels great. What else could we possibly want? Um, so I was really nervous when it was time to audition for Megawatt. And I was like, okay, well, you know, teams most of the time don't work. I think in my opinion, most of the time, not that they don't work, but they don't feel like that. Yeah. They're, they're your average team is not going to have a shelf life of more than a year. Totally. If, yeah. If, if, and on that's on the good side, mm-hmm. it's yeah. just realistic. 
Oh, absolutely. I think, Chrissy, with your embarrassment of riches, that perhaps there is a common element in both of those teams. <laughs> is it possible that there's something about the way that you uh, uh, carry yourself and the attitude that you bring that perhaps is part of the wonderful chemistry that makes these teams work? Well... <laughs> Thank you for that insinuation. <laughs> it cannot merely be an accident. Um, I think... I, to be, with Having just put you horribly on the spot like that <laughs> and put you in a no-win situation where anything you say now is going to make you sound like an arrogant like a asshole. pompous jerk yeah. face. <laughs> uh, um, I am serious about that. Uh, um, because I, I think the reality is that most people don't have wonderful experiences on their teams, mm-hmm. let alone two wonderful experiences on their teams. Yeah. And I also think that the reality is a lot of people will become anxious and bitter and find the reason for that outside of themselves. The yeah. reason for that is always a bad coach or this asshole or that asshole mm-hmm. or, or, or uh, you know, take your pick of reasons. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times people don't really think about necessarily the energy that they're bringing like, are you creating a space where you're making the people around you feel what you're looking to feel? I've been so big, actually, on that just that very specific point of energy lately when it comes to what you're bringing to the table with teams. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, when I coach, because it's just the littlest things that you don't realize will will cause hairline fractures in the foundation of trust of a team. And if you get too many... I just don't, I don't know. I don't, you're never fully trusting each other the way that you should be on stage. Yeah. And we're all guilty of leaving a show and beating ourselves up over something that we've done vocally. Um, but even when you do that, it's, I think it's, it's kind of a, people take away from that something bad about themselves as well, because you never get anywhere on stage by yourself. Like nothing that you do has come from nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the, everything is building on what somebody else has done. And so if you're blaming yourself for a move that you didn't like, or blaming yourself for a scene that you did that you didn't like, it's just, I don't know, the blame kind of waves over everybody else. And it, and it kind of leads to, I think, feelings where later somebody else might hesitate to, to jump out to, to do a scene or to make a move if it, if it reminds them of that bad moment. Yeah. Um, so I'm always kind of like, you got to live or die for the, for like the sidelines matter. Like the audience, you know, is great, but your people matter more than everything else. Yeah. I'd rather see a team crash and burn all together than see one person just like trying to quote unquote save a set. Totally. You know? Yeah, totally. I, I've always liked that idea that, um, like you might bomb in front of an audience and really embarrass yourself horribly and that night it feels like shit, but you're probably not going to see all those people again. Whereas the people on stage with you, you have to look these people in the eye again on Tuesday when you show up in a rehearsal room. That's such a good point. And, and if you sold them out to be above their failure mm-hmm. or, or if you tried to make yourself the hero that's looking to like put a polish on everybody's thing and, and now you got to deal with that next time you see them. Mm-hmm. That audience doesn't matter nearly as much as the fact that you just violated a very important bond between these, your tribe. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think with, with what you're talking about, I think some people, and God knows I've been guilty of this myself, oh, yeah. but some people I think are a little bit superstitious to not beat themselves up 
after a show. Mm-hmm. I, it's an interesting thing too, because the people who are addicted and it is an addiction listeners yeah. to the podcast, there is an addiction to beating yourself up after shows. Couldn't agree more. The people who are addicted to it do it after good shows just as much as they do it after bad shows. Mm-hmm. It gets to a point where you almost can't tell the difference anymore. It, it, it You start to feel, and I, this is why I think it's an addictive thing mm-hmm. or maybe like a little bit of like an OCD thing. Uh, um, I think a superstition creeps in that if you're not beating yourself up about shit or taking it really personally and really hard, uh, um, you're going to lose everything that you've worked for. I I think there's a feeling that it's all just going to kind of go away Mm -hmm. or, you know, or, 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 or God is going to punitively, uh, uh, your hubris is going to bring you to ruin. I think there is a little bit of that in some people's minds that, Mm -hmm. that uh, unless you're pissed off at yourself, you don't really mean it or you're not being serious at that, at this performance game. Mm -hmm. And, And I could not agree more. Even if you have the best of reasons and even if you love what everybody around you did, but you just think that you kind of tanked a show or, mm-hmm. or you're not good enough, whatever, um, what you probably don't recognize is that you're creating this cloud around you that other people are picking up as, as um, judgment and, mm-hmm. and they kind of don't want to engage with you anymore and people will become nervous your own self-judgment translates to judgment of other people. That mm-hmm. is just a fact. Yes. There's no escaping it. And mm-hmm. it's one of the first telltale signs of a team about to have real serious structural problems. Yeah. And that's not to say that we all need to be perfect people all the time, you know, to like keep this. We're all guilty. I mean, we're all guilty of it. I do it. We all feel bad sometimes after shows. And, you know, sometimes you just can't help it. Um, but I think you know, in the end you have to just feel so lucky to be with the people that you're with and, and celebrate the things that they're doing. Um, because that's what keeps the energy kind of more on the positive side as opposed to the negative side, which can, you know, it can be hard. It's a struggle to, to be able to articulate what is wonderful about other people. Yeah. Or, or it, this is a double-edged sword because at the same time I say that, it's also really easy to see what other people are great at and, and what you are failing at. Absolutely. And it's really hard to see what you're great at that mm-hmm. other people see that you can't see. That's a, such a common thing that exactly the thing that people love about you is your biggest blind spot about yourself mm-hmm. or something that is so obvious to you that you don't even register it as, as like worthwhile. Yeah. But I, I think that it's also very hard it's very easy to look around and be critical about what's not working about your team or not this person always does this or that person always does. It's much harder to be able to give voice to your to the things that you're passionate about and that you enjoy. Mm-hmm. And it's a very precious skill to be able to develop because I think that you can sense that too when someone is actively paying attention to what they like about you, what they respect about you. Mm-hmm. And when you sense that in the same way as like that negativity about yourself becomes this cloud that keeps people at arm's distance from you. Mm-hmm. When you sense that people genuinely respect you, you rise to that occasion. And I think great teams have that ability to challenge each other in that way of not like laying down the gauntlet of like, okay, top this asshole. Mm-hmm. But, but they challenge each other because there's enough respect in the room that nobody wants to let anybody, they don't want to let themselves down. Uh, no, that's a shitty way of putting it because that's, that's a negative place to be coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I will be prone to do greater things on stage if I know 
that you believe I can do great things on stage. Yes. Yes, I agree. Like, I, I think on Metal Boy, we'll do that a lot. Like, we'll set each other up with stuff that seems... Hard. Like, we'll make Sam rap. But we just, we do it because we know Sam can do it, yeah. you know? Yeah. Or we'll let Pat have 20 minutes where he does the physical thing over and over again. <laughs> and we, like, give him the space to, like, just, this is the moment in the show when Pat doesn't, you know, tries to get on a lifeguard chair for 10 minutes. Two, you know? two weeks ago, it was, like, four minutes of him falling. A bowling, yeah. <laughs> when he was falling whilst <laughs> bowling. Falling bowling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we want to let Eli be... You know, a great, a, a great funny mom. Yeah. You know, like he's, he is great at that. Yeah. You know, so I think there's, I think when you're setting people up because you're doing, it comes from a good place when you, you're like, oh, I, I love when they do this thing. Yeah. So we're just going to like, let them do it. There's a couple of things I want to, I want to <laughs> dig into yeah. a, a, about this. Um, uh, with Metal Boy in particular, and I, I want to talk about Mannequin Room in just a second. But yeah, sure. With Metal Boy in particular, you guys, if I may be so bold, I would put you on the short list of, of um, great teams to have graced the megawatt stage. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. <laughs> and you guys do something that is a, a, a difficult balance because it's really clear when you're performing that you love each other mm-hmm. um, and have a great relationship off stage there's just that feeling of like these people like celebrate each other and seem to really enjoy being with each other sometimes when teams have that as their mo it doesn't necessarily translate into great shows Mm -hmm. there's kind of like an in-joke feel where where you can see the team making themselves laugh yeah but that last step of sharing that with the audience and letting them get the contact high sort of is falling short you guys have this perfect balance of disciplined play um but like your love for each other channels into that disciplined play so it just becomes like a party for everybody in the room to enjoy you guys are also a really amazing team at just yesing the shit out of whatever you're a super super silly team oh man we're so silly things get incredibly <laughs> silly and they get out of control really fast uh-huh. and that's a danger to a team that has less ability uh, uh or, or less discipline because i think that you guys are a deceptively disciplined team mm-hmm. it looks chaotic when you're playing yeah and and you give yourselves over to that spirit of like throwing yourselves in wholeheartedly to whatever and and going to the most fun place possible but you also have the discipline to pull all that stuff off and to rein it in and to know where to return to and to know what to invest in again to keep people actually caring about what they're looking at which is a very very difficult thing thank you very hard thing to pull off Uh, um uh, sometimes I'll see this with student groups a lot. Mm-hmm. People will think that yes, ending each other is the kind of beginning and end of the whole thing, and they'll let themselves get carried away with yes, ending the flow of a show to a point where either the show itself becomes so ridiculous that it's hard to care about anymore. Mm-hmm. It just becomes silliness for no real reason, and 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 you kind of like it's sort of exhausting. Yeah. Or worst case scenario. Um, they yes and themselves into a corner that clearly they don't like. And and you see this kind of blind yes and where you're about to say something and do thing that violates your principles as a person. Mm-hmm. I can feel it. I can mm-hmm. sense you tightening up. And there it is coming out of your mouth. And now we all feel miserable. <laughs> My and, eyeballs got so wide as you described that thing because I've seen it happen so many times. Oh, it, it's horrible. Yeah, and it's so hard to watch because it it's hard to be in that situation. It reminds me, do you ever see the episode of The Office, The American Office? Mm-hmm. 
Did you I just that? rewatched the whole season, actually. Okay. I mean, the whole series. The whole series. <laughs> so the episode where Steve Carell is, is driving and he's following the instructions on his GPS and it's telling him to go straight and there's a lake in front of him and mm-hmm. he just keeps on going right into the lake yep. because he assumes that the GPS must know some kind of secret thing that it's like <laughs> that's what it feels like to me yes. when you see people caught in that they're, they're listening to these instructions in their head about the right way to do it and it just gets they drown in a lake and yeah it's like really horrible you were talking about um feminism before you weren't mm-hmm. you mentioned it you weren't talking about it I i'd do. love to talk i'm about always it. talking about it <laughs> you also uh, if i may say do something that i think is pretty remarkable that i don't see a lot of which is um, I, I have seen you many times in shows m- call somebody out on bullshit <laughs> or, or say something from, from a feminist point of view or make a, a very, very valid point that feels to me like, I think that that's Chrissy Grubel making a point right now. <laughs> and oftentimes when people do that, not to knock uh, um, uh, anybody's point of view out there, mm-hmm. but oftentimes it breaks the show mm-hmm. it, it makes it too like up now that somebody's like politics have encroached on this show and it like stops things yeah you do it in a way where you're able to make a point and get a hit and not let things get yes handed to this thing that is like we all know that that's bullshit <laughs> and it makes the show delightful to watch <laughs> how do you do that, do, oh. do, is that does that question make sense I, I don't know if i phrased that well oh kind of i i know i i know what you mean um I think how I can call people out for stuff that I personally yeah. don't agree with yeah. without derailing the show. Yeah. You will call somebody out for doing something that you don't think is right. And it's the funniest thing in the world. And the show <laughs> is funnier for it. Thank you. Um, it's, it's interesting. Cause there was, um, I think when I started, when I started working at magnet specifically, is I always say, you know, I learned how to do improv at, at, at UCB, um, but at Magnet, I found my voice. I became an improviser at Magnet. Um, and I think that somewhere along the line, I just kind of started to bring my own kind of point of view into it. And also, too, like people really kind of more towards the back half of my improv education people who identify as female on stage um, in a world that is so male-dominated, you know, that was so male-dominated for so long, that kind of conversation really, really started happening a lot. And I started thinking about it a lot. And um, I think just in general, like, there's just situations where I never want, I never want anyone to think that I, as a human being, am okay with like with with being Doctor Girlfriend, mm-hmm. with that being my character name, mm-hmm. you know, or or you know, you know, letting someone assume I'm a nurse just because I'm a woman, mm-hmm. you know, things like that, where you know, it's it's not. Like, I understand that it's not coming from, a, like, a negative place on stage. Most of the people that I play with are pretty great about everything. Um, but I don't know. There was just, I felt, suddenly felt, like, a responsibility to the audience to be like, nope, that's not cool. Like, that's not cool because in this world, I'm going to empower myself to mm-hmm. say why that's not cool, you know? Like, I'm trying to think of a... It's so weird to be like, what is the thing that I did that was good? 
to like try to use it as an example. Um, it's but, okay. But I, I, I opened this line right of questioning, now. so you're you're exempted from from <laughs> hubris. Um, yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to think about it. I don't know. I, I think too when I first started when I first started performing here, I had um, a couple people say to me like, "Hey, I really like that you like don't let people get away with shit on stage like that." And I was kind of like, "Oh, like I didn't." I don't know if I even knew that I was doing it. Um, I don't know. This is not answering your question at all. No, I'm just it, like falling down no, a no, well. No, no, <laughs> it, it is because it, because it, it's touching on something that's very near and dear to my heart, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, which is um, nobody's putting words into our mouths on, on these stages. Mm-hmm. And if I have like a disappointment, maybe disappointment's too strong a word, mm-hmm. but certainly something that's been on my mind a lot for the last few months is um, I'd like to see some deeper stuff on stage. Yeah. I'd like to see stuff that like better reflects like the people that I'm watching and, and like real life. And, and don't get me wrong. I don't mean, I I just want to see everything be like serious, realistic play. Mm -hmm. I don't, I want to see, you know, slugs on the moon, but I want to see things coming out of the mouths of slugs on the moon that actually reflect like real life experiences. Mm -hmm. And, and so for me, it's this constant thing when somebody pulls it off well, it feels like enough of a miracle that like I'm walking three inches above the ground for the next couple of days to keep something both deliriously fun and moving forward and, and joyful and amazing and surprising. But at the same time, I'm watching people who have a, a voice to them, who have points of view, and mm-hmm. who are using that those points of view. I'm watching people not educate me because I, I don't feel that that... Yeah, that's not good. That And, and that, to, to go back, that's what I mean by like sometimes when people bring out their actual point of view or bring out their politics on stage, mm-hmm. it brings things to a screeching halt because you feel now like you're being educated. Yeah. And, and immediately when you feel that you're being educated, you kind of like tune out of it. Mm-hmm. Not that, but I want to feel like I'm engaging with an intelligent person mm-hmm. who's actually using their mind because they can. Mm-hmm. I, like I... I, I I always think about that, that like the roots to it, the roots to like improv theater in general as like a public performance thing, just go back to people who wanted to do socially relevant plays, but they didn't have plays to perform. So they just made shit up Mm -hmm. and it becomes such a great device at creating entertainment and such a great device at just veering into comedy that, that you lose sight sometimes in, in, in that like, no, if I think what you're saying is bullshit, I can just tell you it's bullshit. And trust that, like, my improv education will continue the scene. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think that once I felt like I was, once I had felt like I'd gotten to a certain point in my improv that things didn't throw me, like, I didn't have to, I didn't have to just continue moving things forward. It was like, oh, no, like, this is, this feels like a safe place to be like, hey, that's a thing that I don't agree with. Let's keep doing it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. let's keep doing it. Um so I think there's like definitely an element of like feeling comfortable just with your technical improv skills mm-hmm. um, and being able to, and then I think you, you feel more comfortable, at least for me, I felt more comfortable being like, there are moments here that I can infuse my, my personality or my points of view or my opinions in here mm-hmm. that I don't feel like is like a dangerous, we're going to fall off a cliff and now we have to talk about, you know, 
gender roles for the next like, you know, 15 minutes in mm-hmm. a non-comedic way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I would love to talk about gender roles outside of the stage all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. And let's talk about that for a moment. Um, uh, how is the community doing? <laughs> I, I, I don't know how to ask that question in a way mm-hmm. that seems like a, a meaningful. Uh, so this would be my perception of things. Mm-hmm. Since I started improvising, mm-hmm. um, I've, I've been doing it for like 12 or 13 years or something. Mm-hmm. So, and in that time, it feels like there's been a, a, a radical shift in openness. Yes. When I started improvising, and I wasn't really that aware of it at the time, but but I was pretty guy heavy. Mm-hmm. And, and there was a particular kind of college... Uh, um, age point of view about stuff. Maybe it's just because I was college age and, and those are the people I was seeing. Yeah. But it, it seems like things are are opening up in a very wonderful way recently. Is mm-hmm. that true? I know that there's a long way to go and I know that the dialogue has to continue and, and, and that we have to actively mm-hmm. go out of our way to live up to some of the ideals that maybe we pay lip service to. Yeah. How How... How is improv doing in your experience? In my experience, um, I think as of how we're doing right now, I think the fact that the conversations have started and they're getting deeper and they're getting, they're really kind of starting to attack the, the issues of any kind of diversity on stage and, and gender identification and how we you know, as performers, how we, how we do those things and, and just how we cast. Um, I think the conversations are happening. It's because I think, you know, improv is kind of just improv. The improv community is just like a microcosm of society. And like, it's just a magnifying glass is held up to the things that we're, I think in society, we're starting to kind of become, this is probably a very optimistic viewpoint, but I think as a society, people are starting to become more interested in engaging with these types of topics in a way that maybe we weren't. And I think improv, the improv community in general is also becoming way more interested and more vocal and in having conversations like this that are difficult. And sometimes, you know, you, you say the wrong thing and you feel like an idiot and there's a lot of like education involved and, um, you know, it takes time. I think my experience um, was very uh, was very unique. I think because again, the, I mentioned the mannequin room. Um, the mannequin room was a team of three women and um, two Puerto, Me- Puerto Rican men, and one of whom was gay. And we did not. It was not. It was just a, a five people who got together because they really enjoyed playing together. But we were all people who were kind of on like the marginalized ends of what we thought, what, what the improv community kind of majority wise was. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the kind of space that I grew up in as an improviser. Um, feeling like I've never on my indie team felt like I was steamrolled or that my opinions weren't listened to or, um, or that we had experience, we had experiences that we couldn't share that wouldn't be supported because they weren't understood. Um, and so I think that that expect I've always just had that expectation that like I will be able to present 
my experience and it will be supported even if it's not a universal experience mm-hmm. on stage um, has kind of like driven my whole improv life. But I know that that's not the case for for everybody. We just recently had that diversity town hall about gender um, with a lot of wonderful people on the panel and specifically Emily Shore Lesnick. I hope I'm not butchering her name. I don't know her very well. You got it. Yeah. All right. Um, she's so, so, so smart. Um, and so, and seemingly so much more educated on this subject that I certainly am not very educated. All I know is my experiences and my perceptions and, you know, things that I think about a lot, but she kind of noticed that as we were all talking, that a lot of the things that we were discussing were more reactionary mm-hmm. about how to, what if this happens? How do we respond to it? What, what should we do to respond to this situation? And she was like, instead, we should maybe be thinking about ways that we can head this off at the pass and kind of start that education right at the top and let that kind of sink through the community and see what happens if we start these conversations right at level one when it happens. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting like point. I think, you know, I kind of just think that on stage you get sometimes, you know, the most interesting things come out of mm-hmm. people. I'm sure you see that a lot in your classes, especially your like newer, younger levels. Um, Cause it's so immediate. We're trying to teach people to just get rid of their filter and they're saying whatever <laughs> And it can sometimes be shocking, but it's whatever you were steeped in. You know, it's the society we were steeped in and mm-hmm. we kind of have to like dismantle it from, <laughs> from the inside, I guess. Right. Yeah. You know, um, am I yeah. giving? <laughs> yes. Yeah. It, 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 well, it's an ongoing point of fascination because yeah. f- I mean, for me, it's a very important thing that, that people in class feel, uh, safe. Mm-hmm. Um, on all sides, mm-hmm. it, 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 that means safe um, physically is the number one thing, obviously, yes, sure. and it also means like emotionally and, and respectfully. That's a very, very close second to physical safety. Mm-hmm. But it also means to me safety that sometimes shit comes out of your mouth that's stupid inadvertently, or mm-hmm. shit comes out of your mouth that's like funky inadvertently. And part of safety for me is. That's okay. Mm-hmm. We will laugh at you for the fool that you are and move on <laughs> yeah. and, and, and not crucify a person for it. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes it is just this, um, a person battling so many layers of their own insecurity that it's this weird, like compensating thing in their brain that it, there's no, you can sometimes tell the difference between when somebody is just a fucking jabroni Oh yeah. <laughs> versus when somebody says something and they immediately turn blood red and mm-hmm. are like, "Oh my god, I just microaggressed you, and I didn't mean to, and I'm so sorry." Yeah. And I, I, for me, it's important that that person feel protected as well. That like, we can deal with that instead of criminalizing you. Mm-hmm. We can deal with that, and that's okay. And we can find a way to call you on that in a way that makes a wonderful scene and a wonderful show, and not in a way that. Um, makes you feel like you should be afraid of yourself. Does that make sense? Yes. Mm-hmm. And those types of situations too, you know, also open doors for dialogue Yeah. and, you know, things that we can all, things we can, we should all do better at. Yeah. 
you know, you want to be a good citizen. You want to be a good citizen on stage and, you know, an inclusive person and us and an intelligent and have the emotional intelligence to kind of, you know, juggle some complicated things. Yeah. Um, and I think the more that I really just think the more that we talk about it, even in, in the diversity town hall, we, we didn't even scratch the surface at gender identification mm-hmm. and that's a whole, mm-hmm. you know, that's an, another, you know, page that we need to turn collectively as a community and kind of discuss and, you know, become more intelligent about it, you know? It occurs to me, and, and, and I apologize for if there's hyperbole involved in this, but I've used the, if, if Alessandra is listening to this podcast, here comes another X-Men reference just for you, Alessandra. Everything I do was an X-Men reference. <laughs> Apparently I got called recently. I'm mentioning X-Men in every <laughs> single podcast, which I don't think is true. It's not true. Grant is telling me, and I'm not even a very big X-Men person. I'm not an X-Men person at all. So whatever. But to use another X-Men thing, it occurs to me that um, many of the skills that we celebrate and, and learn as improvisers, including respect for one another's voices, including considering one another's points of view, including putting ourselves in each other's shoes, including building things together, including exploring the thematic content to suggestions and challenging ourselves to elevate our thinking, to not simply take things at face value, but to really probe and explore the multiple meanings that lurk behind it and, and, and bring those to the light of day so that we can use them. It seems to me that that's encouraging a way of thinking that's helping to better train us as people to be adaptable to uh, the 21st century lifestyle, which is a lifestyle in which we are having to be open to many, many points of view Mm -hmm. that up until 20 years ago would have been well, well outside most people's uh, um, kind of tribal identification. Mm -hmm. And, And as we're meeting each other on deeper levels and taking less for granted or try aiming to take less for granted about each other and, and aiming to, to not just define people by simple categories and move on from there. And, you know, like Mm -hmm. I think that there is an honest push in a lot of people to want to be better and kinder and smarter. And, and you can kind of sense it that there's like a need with a lot of people for like, okay, let's really we're trying to be, we're trying to be decent to each other. Well, and we can't just passively engage no. with the world. No, but nor can you just spend your life simply being angry about things and mm-hmm. fighting people. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that improv is one of the side results of it is learning a way of thinking together that can be applied. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, that can be applied and not simply taking things at face value and taking people at face value, but exploring that there are multiple multiple meanings to everything that are all ripe for exploration. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. I, 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 going back to what you were saying about like thematic content being important to you in shows, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm uh, really big on, I think improv is very seductive because it's such an easy way to generate entertainment and it's yeah. such an easy way to get a laugh that you kind of forget sometimes uh, um, more of like the Del Close school of thought on it, which is um, elevate your thinking about everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it, it's a challenge to become smarter, to use to use the um, the synergy of groupthink to individually become smarter mm-hmm. and grapple more information and process more things more quickly and find interconnections that didn't reveal themselves to you at face value. Uh, um, and that's something that, that is always in the back of my mind of, of 
rarely do I find myself thinking, man, this should be funnier. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. because it's not hard to be funny in improv. It's actually not. Improv is not a hard thing. I'm sorry to say this, but it's not. Mm-hmm. If you can get over a certain amount of self-consciousness, mm-hmm. figuring out the mechanics of what's funny is not terribly difficult, yeah. at, at least in the context of being in an improv room. You can't then go up and improvise on, in, in, at a party and have people laughing at you necessarily. What's really hard is keeping it funny and entertaining and also having people remember the characters that you created after the fact Mm -hmm. because there's something about them that felt like people that stick with you. That's my two cents. Mm -hmm. I got so far afield from the topic. (laughs) No, I think think that's interesting because I feel like when I started doing improv, like that was the stuff that attracted me to improv more than anything else because I wasn't funny. Like I just wasn't a funny person. And... I was like, okay, well, if I'm not going to be funny, then like, I'll just make a great character that like is real or I'll like act the shit out of it. Um, or I will make connections that like, you know, are, that are apparent that are just like ready to be connected. Um, and like, that's the stuff that I really, really focused on for so, so long. And then I feel like all of a sudden doing that, I kind of felt a little bit funnier like as time went on. And then I was like, oh no, I understand why people want to be funny on stage all the time. Yeah. It feels so good. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> it does. And, and, and don't get me wrong either. I'm not like discounting. No, I don't think so. Like they're like anything else, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, um, a little bit is very healthy and too much is poison, right? Yeah. Comedy can be brandished as a weapon in a very negative sense because it makes it acceptable. You can get a thousand people laughing at once and collectively identify with their own fucking prejudices and bigotries and make it totally acceptable. Mm-hmm. Larry the Cable Guy or whatever. Yeah. Maybe he's not that bad. I don't watch him. No, so I mean, that, yeah. that in itself was bigoted of me to have said. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like We've all seen like hack comedians who can get a thousand people cheering at, at, at just basically patting themselves on the back for thinking what they already think. And Mm -hmm. that can be a dangerous thing because you're using it in this very like opiate way. Mm -hmm. Um, But we can never discount the elation that good comedy gives to a person's brain that it feels so good. But as it's feeling so good, you're forcing your brain to create these neural pathways and create connections between things, which is like the very definition of intelligence. Mm -hmm. Um, so like if I, I would never knock that, that high that you get from learning to become really good at, at comedy. But I will say this, mm-hmm. working like when I'm coaching, mm-hmm. I find it much harder to work with experienced improvisers than I do to work with less experienced improvisers. And here's why. It's much harder in my experience to get experienced improvisers actually uh, saying what they think in a scene. Uh, uh-huh. than it is to get them finding the funniest possible way to do something. Yeah. Get really good improvisers in a room and, and they're going to figure out the funniest possible way to, to play a scene. Mm-hmm. But then getting them to not go for the joke and just tell me what you might say in that moment is very difficult. And you kind of sense sometimes this kind of like, ugh, that like attitude about it. That's, yeah. that's hard. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that I kind of feel a little honor bound to like ship at somewhat yeah it's important you have to know you have to know when to like let the joke fly fly away and like really lock into something on a deeper level well you do sometimes it's disarming as hell i saw alan fessenden last night play Mm -hmm. a trump supporter in a show Mm -hmm. that really started on touchy ground i'm sorry if you're listening to this alan but it it started and you can kind of sense everybody feeling uncomfortable yeah 
it, it, it felt like one of those like ugly things where you're 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 just clearly showing the opposite point of view, but in a way that like it just it felt nasty. And then he got into it and he started digging into it. And by the end of the show, it was one of the best shows I've seen in months. Yeah, it was so funny and mm-hmm. so good. And he never bailed on it for a second. He like really committed that's, to it that's pro that's a pro total pro yeah. but he also didn't play it as a cardboard cutout he didn't go mm-hmm. for just the easy laughs he made this guy a person yeah it made him tough to take mm-hmm. but he also made him a person and 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 it wasn't just this one note thing and i walked away from it feeling like a, a service had been done to me as an audience member yeah you know what i mean like i was mm-hmm. forced to have to think i was forced to have to look at something that i normally would not give the time of day to mm-hmm and have to process it and have to come to terms with it to a degree. And I felt like better about it. I, I felt like this is going to sound uh, uh, so like precious, but like you feel slightly braver after that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, like you're not going to shy away from the stuff that makes you upset in real life, but you're slightly yeah. more prepared to like look at it. Mm-hmm. Where the hell was I going with this? I don't know. I forget where we were. <sighs> It started off so good. It like we, had an, we had an X Men reference, bad and then we went. <laughs> yeah, evolve your thinking is what I'm saying, folks. <laughs> it's a bad conversation. It's turned, I'm sorry. It's not you. It's me. <laughs> I screwed this up. God bless. Uh, um, you are on two wonderful teams. Yes, I'm very, very lucky. You've played with uh, uh, the Mannequin Room for years since 2009, 2010, 2010. Five six years. That's yeah, a long it's a time long, long time. I was just with them the other night, actually. Yeah, mm-hmm. the love is still there, and the shows are still there. Mm. The shows are still there. The love is still there for sure. What's the we, secret? Oh man. Well, I'll be honest. We did lose one member. Went to LA um, when we lost my other member. Um, uh, one of the other members, not lost, but they, you know, kind of are more out of the improv thing, except with us. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time. Now it's me and, and my two other teammates still in mannequin room, still play this. We still play the same way. Um, I don't know. Just, they're just, I always go back and forth about whether or not you need to be really good friends with your teammates to have great shows. I don't think that you do. I've never had an experience that, that, that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's a universal truth though. Um, but I do think there's always just that element of, I love these people. I, I love these people outside of improv. I love these people on stage and I think they're the funniest people. I just think they're so funny. Um, and I feel the same way about metal boy. It's like, I feel like they're all so, so smart and so, so funny so that every time we get on stage together, it's like, Oh, I cannot wait to see what you bring to the table today. Mm -hmm. Um, because I know it's going to be something that I, that I think is great and hilarious and honestly I think that's kind of all it is I mean and also too things that go into it are the same things that go into any kind of relationship or any kind of partnership with anybody or families really good communication um not not you know not talking about your team business with anyone else other than your team Mm -hmm. um yeah, I think that those are like two really, and everyone coming to work and doing the work. Yeah. Mannequin Room practiced every Wednesday for two years. No one missed. Yeah. We did not miss practice. And, you know, when you said you were going to be at a show, you were at a show. Um, and it's those types of things, I think, that really contribute to the long-term success of any 
anything, yeah. you know, any relationship. It's a relationship. It's a family. It's such a great way to think about that. And in the same way as like, you're inviting trouble if you show up to a relationship and then immediately begin um, uh, laying down your terms. Mm-hmm. Conversely, you're in trouble if you bring yourself to a relationship and then bring your weakest, most passive self to that relationship. Yeah, uh, uh, you're inviting people to abuse you, mm-hmm. you know, and take advantage of your good nature. And in and in the first case scenario, you're inviting people to hate your guts and, <laughs> and feel like pushed around by you. But that shit, that people who wouldn't think of doing that in a relationship have no problem getting on a team and by the third week of their team are already complaining about everybody yeah. and, and because they're not doing it the way I think it should be done. And mm-hmm. it's like so I hate foolish. that attitude is so horrible. It, it is so, it's such a destructive attitude. Mm-hmm. And, and even if you're not actively saying it, you feel it coming out of people's pores, you feel it coming at you and it, it just brings out shitty work. I, yeah, for sure. And I've said this on the podcast before, and I will say it again. I will say it until I die. Your integrity begins off stage. Show up at your rehearsal on time. Mm-hmm. Show up at your shows. Don't text people ten minutes before saying you're not going to be there. Just do what you say you're going to do. And it, uh, it, it, even if you show up for rehearsal and you do the stupidest rehearsal of your life, mm-hmm. the fact that for two years these people have showed up when they said they were going to be there means that there's a qualitative difference when they get on stage together to perform. And we did so many shows too. There was a year where we did like 200 shows and we counted them because we're lame. Um, But we did hundreds and hundreds of shows. And, and again, it was like, we were all there. We were all in it. We were all in it together. And that translates on stage, you know, and bad shows. I mean, we've had so many bad shows. And also I think you would develop um, a certain sense of love and nostalgia for the teams that you bombed with very early on. You know, I will never bomb the way I bombed with them when we first were starting out. And those shows are the ones that we laugh about the most now because they're just like, Oh God, we did that show at the Cove and we got heckled and it was horrible. (laughs) You know, Um, those are the memories that you built with these people that make it, you know, fun. They, I've had um, kind of a, a, a little bit of like running warm and running cold with indie teams in the past mm-hmm. because my feeling is I have the greatest respect for people who decide. I don't want to be told what to do. I, these are the people who I want to play with and this is what we want to do and we're going to do our thing and which I think is like the spirit of improvising. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So often my experience has been that people will put together indie teams as an excuse to just be lazy and not work yeah. and, and do half-hearted B-minus C-plus shows and, and get a drink afterwards and to me it feels like, oh, that's such a waste. Yeah. Because you're missing the thing that you can learn from being part of a great indie group which is total ownership and there was very much a a sense of we're going to do what we want to do our way yeah um and i think you know that's healthy in any you know we were in we were in the ucb system and we were all moving up and trying to get the thing and um but i think there's so much power in being able to be like yeah that thing would be great but look what look what we've built right on our own yeah um and i think that's kind of the advice that i give to any student who has been kind of like circulating and hasn't quite, you know, broken through the way that they want to. 
or leveled up the way they want to, whether it's getting on a house team or, or whatever it ends up being for them. And I'm just like, find the people that you want to work with and do the work that you want to do, because that infuses you with a new energy that you'll take to everything else that you do. Yeah. Well, it's like you described early on in the conversation, uh, declaring your major, which by the way, I, I, I find it funny when college kids have the moment where they declare their major. <laughs> I declare. I declare, yes. That I'm a biologist. I got up on a hilltop and I screamed into the I declare <laughs> political science. I declare it. It's been yep, declared. It's been declared. There, there are some people who, who kind of know what they want and then like go for it and are really good at, mm-hmm. at strategizing how to go for it. Um, and then there are some people who kind of aren't really great necessarily at knowing what they want, but you know when it feels good when you're around the people that you love and, and, and you kind of like enter into i I'm sure there's gotta be some evolutionary parallel to it. I forget. There is a phrase for it. I forget what it is, a sporting organism or a sporting environment. It's when an organism finds the environment that's most suited to its physical capabilities Uh and then it thrives in that environment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being social animals, a lot of times that environment, it can be a city as bite-sized as Philadelphia or as, or as, um, gargantuan is new york Mm -hmm. but a lot of times that environment is just like the people finding the people that when you're around them you just feel powerful yeah and you know that that's the correct habitat that you're in and 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 i think that that is such wonderful advice to give to people who are looking to put their own thing together it it, it's less where you are i think Mm -hmm. or how far along you are and more do i really feel powerful and wonderful around these other human beings yeah, I think you can get caught up in being like, I'm going to do everything and I'm going to do every team and I'm going to take every class. And and that's how I'm going to get better. And it's like, at some, and yes, that stuff does work sometimes. But at a certain point too, I think it's also like quality over quantity. It's like, are you with the people who are digging in with you? Mm-hmm. Or are you with people who are very like wishy-washy about the commitment to the performance? Mm-hmm. Um, you'll learn from being in both situations. Yeah. And it's just up to you to figure out which one, where you're at and which one is going to serve you best in your development. Where do you find, you're coaching a lot these days? Not a ton. Okay. um, But enough that I enjoy it very much. Where is your mind at these days? What, are you finding any like particular like themes or or pet obsessions that you're exploring? Uh, The energy thing is definitely something that I've been thinking about so much. Um, and, And what energy you're bringing into the room and what energy you're bringing on stage and and you know that whole thing um and yeah i think it's i'm always just talking i'm always trying to build the team and not the person Mm. um if if individuals you know come to me and are like hey i'm struggling with x y and z great we'll talk about the stuff that can help um but if i'm practicing i I guess if i'm working with a practice group we'll work on that type of thing but if we're working if i'm working with a team it's always about how to make the strongest unit and how to play as a unit. Um, and that's the most fulfilling stuff for me as a coach where it's like, you know, you need to feel creating a safe space where people can take risks and push themselves. You know, those are, that's the kind of thing that I'm thinking about. It's not as improv technique-y I think as, as maybe, you know, you were, you wanted? No, that's not true, actually. I <laughs> No, fostering great values for groups, to me, far exceeds improv technique stuff. 
and perf technique stuff you pull out uh, as you need to, mm-hmm. you know, but, but having, having good values in place that keep you aspiring, I, I, you know, I, what else is it about if it's not us collectively working together to seek out our values? If you want to be an individual performer, then do a different thing. Yeah. You know, like this is not, this is just not the art form for you. I think Yeah. if you want to stand out as an individual, um, but if you want to, I don't know. I just think, I mean, it's very personal for me because, because my improv career has been so strongly defined by being a part of teams that have filled me up and made me feel like a million dollars all the time. Even my circuit team here, Norm was, you know, a wonderful experience. And that's huge. That's, I talked to performers who were in my generation who have never had that. And I'm like, Oh, I want that for you. You know, like you'll get it, but you got, it's just, and it gets, it beats you down because you've never had the experience that improv should be. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least that you think it should be. Uh, so that's really the thing that I just keep, just keep hammering it over the head. <laughs> Chrissy Grubel, you are a class act. Oh boy. Thank you for talking. Thank you. You guys can see Chrissy perform every Wednesday night with Metal Boy. Dang. You can see Chrissy with the Friday night show mm-hmm. at the Magnet Theater. Where else would you like people to seek you out? Um, you could, I don't know, follow me on Twitter if you want. It's Chrissy Grubel. It's pretty easy to find. Do it, gang. Yeah. Thank you, Chrissy. Thank you, Lewis. And thank you guys for listening. A couple of other huge thanks. Thank you to Grant Michael Goldberg, our engineer. Thank you to Evan Ford Barden, not currently in the room, but he is here Slacker. in spirit, our producer. <laughs> Ed Herbstman, our executive producer, and all of you wonderful folks for listening to the podcast. We sure do appreciate it. Uh, if you enjoyed uh, this conversation, please give us a like on uh, on the old uh on the old uh, computer there. And uh, if you didn't uh, enjoy it, good for you for making it this far through. You're a a hero. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Chrissy. Thank you, Lewis. Bye, friends. (laughs) You've been listening to The Magnet Podcast. Fabulous. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.